This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. So with that, uh, we're going to turn now to God's Word. If you have your Bible, open it up to Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. It'll be somewhere near the center of your Bible, and we've been in this book really... If I'm counting right, we've been in Ecclesiastes for 16 weeks now, uh, give or take maybe a week or two. I was trying to count it up. But 16 weeks that we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're actually nearing the end of our time in this book. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to refresh our memory of where this book started to remind us of why we're here, what we're doing in the ninth and 10th chapter of Ecclesiastes. The writer of Ecclesiastes set out nine chapters ago to investigate some of the largest questions in life. Questions like, why are we here on the earth? How should we spend our time? Where do we find satisfaction in life? What is worth giving our time and energy and our whole life to? These questions really can be summed up with one overarching inquiry. How do I live the good life? How do I live a life that is full of meaning, that has a lasting importance and significance? Where can I find a contentment that comes without that lingering sense of emptiness that so many sources of contentment come with? One of the tools that the writer has constantly employed during his search for this good life is wisdom. The writer of Ecclesiastes was Solomon, who was gifted by God with more wisdom than anyone who had ever walked on earth. And so he uses that wisdom as a tool to try to search out, what is it in my life on this earth that's worth pursuing? And at several points, the writer acknowledges the limitation of wisdom, but has continued to profess the benefit of using wisdom. So being wise isn't the end-all, be-all. That's not the answer to this question he's asking of how do I live the good life, but it does seem to be a helpful tool of finding the good life. When we talk about wisdom, we can just define it as, as the practical knowledge of how to live a peaceable or successful, flourishing life. And all the way back in chapter 2, the writer shows us that wisdom, ultimately, true wisdom is given by God To those whom he pleases, they might have the knowledge of how they ought to live. They might have the joy of living in a way that honors him. So wisdom with this definition means knowing right from wrong. But more than that, it means knowing how you're supposed to live and act. It means knowing how to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing so that you might have this peaceful, good life. So wisdom is the tool that the writer is employing to try to find this good life. But again, wisdom itself, just knowing right from wrong, just having more wisdom doesn't answer this question of how do I actually achieve this good, satisfying life. So he continues his search. Before we dive into our passage for this morning, would you just pray with me as we look at the words that were written down thousands of years ago for us? Father, I ask that you would help us 
to investigate well with the writer of Ecclesiastes. We might be able to search out how to have a life that has a lasting significance, but a life where we can rest satisfied without emptiness, without that itch that there might be something better for us. We might find the good life that all of us ache for and desire, even sometimes when we don't think about it. Thank you for your word, and we ask that the only thing we would hear from this time would be your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, wisdom is the tool that the writer employs. And so as we come now to the end of chapter 9, he's going to take one more look just at wisdom itself to see where does this get us in my search for the good life. So if you have your Bible open to Ecclesiastes 9, we'll start reading in verse 13. He says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it and building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So the writer, as he returns to this topic of wisdom tells what's really a classic underdog story. We love these stories. We love to hear these stories where there's two opponents, one who is far more powerful than the other, far more likely to win, but through some unseen twist, they end up losing to the lesser opponent. It's an underdog story. You can find all sorts of movies built around this theme. We often like to view sports stories with that framework, to see the teams that weren't supposed to make it, the teams that weren't supposed to get into the championship go all the way, and then we like to understand what was it? What was that secret ingredient that got them all the way to the trophy? We love this story. And it's set up exactly with that framework. Look at, look at how it's set up. We have a great king. And what do we know about him? He can b- build great or mighty siege works. He's a powerful king capable of building mighty things. And he goes up against a city that is not only small, but has just a few men in it. So we have two factors that are in the king's favor. His own might and the might of the things he is able to build. And we have two factors against the city's favor, that it's small and there's not very many people in it. And so, of course, we're supposed to know how the story ends, that the little city gets wiped out by the king, but instead there's the twist. That though the city is small, though it doesn't have very many people in it, it does have this one wise, poor man. He's the exact opposite of the mighty king. Again, instead of being a king with power and authority, he's just poor. And instead of having strength to be able to build some mighty siege work to take out a city, he just has his wisdom. But... The city is delivered by that one poor wise man. And the strength of his wisdom saves the city from the might of the king. So the writer concludes, wisdom is better than might. Being wise in life is better than being powerful in life. 
Having wisdom is preferable to having strength. So once again, the implication that he, this conclusion he's come to time and time again is clear. Seek to live a wise life. You don't have to chase after power. You don't have to chase after authority. Because those won't even get you as far as wisdom can get you in life. So seek to live a wise life. Again, it's a theme he's come back to again and again, saying, I found benefit in wisdom. I found something good in wisdom. But once again, we see there's also a problem. In fact, there's several that the writer identifies in the passage following this example. We see that wisdom, while helpful, wisdom, while beneficial, wisdom, while able to deliver a small city from a great and mighty king, is still not enough to really get us the good life that he's been chasing after. So the writer of Ecclesiastes commends wisdom to us, but he also shows us four shortcomings of wisdom. To be more precise, there are four shortcomings of following wisdom in a sinful world. The problem isn't with God's wisdom. The problem is that we are sinners living in a sinful world. And so even as we try to live in a way that God has prescribed, we're not going to be able to use that alone to get this good life that we're after. So there's four shortcomings of wisdom in a sinful world. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. To understand these shortcomings and to see what we do in light of them. So shortcoming number one, wisdom is temporary. The end of this story that the writer tells turns back to an ache that we have seen all throughout Ecclesiastes. It's a pain that's followed this writer ever since chapter one. In a word, vanity. We have this whole story of a city that was laid siege by a great and mighty king. And the poor man that comes in with his wisdom saves the city. And the city is delivered because of his wisdom. But then at the end of verse 15 it says, yet no one remembered that poor man. We find out that his wisdom was despised. That's a strange twist on a twist. This man's wisdom is what delivered the city, but then... It's that man's wisdom that ends up despised and ignored and moved past. And the writer's coming back to this theme of vanity, saying everything in life is just a vapor or a mist. And so even if you have the keen insight on how to defeat a powerful military opponent and save your city, even if you have that kind of knowledge and you're able to successfully deliver your city and your neighbor's the end result is still that everything will just pass away. That soon you'll be forgotten. Soon that victory that you won for your city will be forgotten. Whatever you had gained through your wisdom will pass on because everything under the sun is vanity. It's a vapor. It's a mist. A few years ago, I had a job where I had to work early in the mornings. And it was early enough that I was getting to work before the sun would rise. And under the right conditions, what can happen, and if you've been up early in the morning, I know you've experienced this, is that with the right weather conditions, there can be a fog that moves in over the land before the sun comes up. And I know it has to do with temperatures and humidities and weather patterns. I'm not sure what all those specific conditions are. 
But I know that at several points when I worked this job, as I was driving to work, there would be a thick, heavy fog that was around me the whole way in to my job. So as I, was, as I was driving in, the only light would be from the traffic lights on my way there. And you would just sort of see a green glow off in the distance that would grow larger until eventually you get close enough to actually see the light itself. And then I'd get to work and I was working outdoors. And I'd be surrounded by this fog. And it just seemed to be like a blanket that sat over everything. You couldn't really see much else when there's a fog. And for some reason, it's also quieter. It's early, the sun is down, birds aren't chirping, squirrels aren't moving. So there's just this still, heavy quietness when the fog was there. And when I was out there by myself, it felt like that's all I could see. Anywhere I looked, there was just this thick fog. But inevitably, every single morning, as soon as that sun broke over the east horizon, Within a matter of minutes, the fog would be gone. It would dissolve away, being pushed away by the rays of the sun, and you wouldn't have ever known it ever existed because there'd be no trace left. And so one moment, it seemed like the fog was all that was ever there. It just surrounded me. It's all I could see. It's all I could hear. And then within literally minutes, the entire landscape would transform, and that fog would be gone and just a distant memory with no evidence that it had ever been around me. That's the way that the writer of Ecclesiastes views our life, like a fog that at one moment can seem to be everything, that at one moment can surround us completely, but within just a few minutes can be gone and eventually forgotten as though we had never existed. It's all vanity. Everything we do can seem so important in the moment But time just keeps passing on. Eventually, we die. And even our memory often is forgotten. And along with it, the wisdom that we once had goes away. The best wisdom in the world can be forgotten by tomorrow. The poor man who saves his little city one day might be despised and ignored the next. Because life is vanity. It's a mist, it's a vapor that you can't grab onto and keep forever. So that's the first shortcoming we see, that wisdom in a sinful world is temporary. It's temporary in a sinful world because you and everyone in the world are only here temporarily. So everything you strive for will eventually pass on. Everything you've ever learned, every way you've ever been taught to live wisely will pass on when you do. Whatever legacy you try to build for yourself will eventually fade, likely be forgotten. So the first thing that we see is that we should not work and strive for our own legacy here in this life. We might be remembered for a few years or a few decades, but eventually all the things that we thought were our most important accomplishments will likely fade away forever. And people who come after us won't remember that they ever took place. So if we put all of our hope for this good life in that legacy, in that lasting, permanent contribution that we can make, the writer of Ecclesiastes says you're hoping in mist. So the first thing we see is that 
Wisdom is temporary. Our own legacy is temporary. So we ought to live in a way that gives God the glory. Because he is the ancient of days who has existed eternally in the past, who will exist eternally in the future. He is the one true God who is not a mist or a vapor. He doesn't pass on. He remains forever and ever. And his glory is the only thing worth proclaiming throughout all of eternity. So our lives are much better served working to proclaim his glory rather than trying to catch some of our own glory. Charles Wesley was a famous hymnist, perhaps the most important hymnist in the history of Christianity. During his life, he wrote over 6,000 hymns, many of which we still sing today. But aside from that, he also helped start what would become the Methodist Church and in many ways contributed to building God's kingdom. Because of all his work, he still has a monument, ironically, at Westminster Abbey to try to remember his contribution. But inscribed on that monument is this phrase, God buries his workmen but carries on his work. For all that Charles Wesley accomplished in his life, he could just sum it up by saying, I was just doing God's work. A work that will continue on long after I'm gone, and a work that will last long after I am forgotten. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. So let's live with that view of wisdom that it's helpful for us, not to build our own legacy or our own importance, but to build and proclaim God's glory to the world. Shortcoming number two, wisdom is delicate. It spoils easily. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense and says to everyone that he is a fool. The anger of the ruler rises against you. Do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So just after giving this example of a man who's able to save his city through wisdom, but then he acknowledges, but that man was forgotten. All of his advice was eventually ignored. The writer goes on to say that for all that wisdom is better than might, for all the ways that wisdom is preferable to power and finding success in this world, the problem is, is it also spoils easily. He says, look at the perfumer who tries to make ointments to give us a, a pleasing aroma. It t- takes a few small insects to ruin the scent of everything that perfumer is trying to accomplish. And so just a, a little bit of foolishness will come in and spoil all the wisdom that you have. All the perfume in the world can't cover up the stench of just a little bit of foolishness. It takes just a small bit of what's bad to ruin the whole lot of wisdom. And the reason is that wise living is the exact opposite of foolishness. It says that the wise man would turn right, the fool would turn left. You can't go both directions at the same time. And so you can't have just a little bit of turning to the left while you're going to the right. You have to decide whether you're going to go left or right. You can't be striving to honor God with your life while actively seeking to disobey him with your life. 
You're either doing one or the other, striving to honor him or striving to disobey him. So you can't have a little bit of greed, just let it linger in your life. You can't have a little bit of lust and just let it be. You can't have a little bit of anger and just ignore your emotion. You can't have a little bit of bitterness and just sort of gloss over it and say, I'll just leave that in place. I'm mostly okay. If you are seeking to live a life that honors God and follows his wisdom, you cannot at the same time seek to walk away from God. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul draws this distinction that if you're going to live in the Spirit, if you're going to live in a way that honors God, you will be continually putting to death all that is fleshly in you, all that is sinful in you. And so if we are living in the wisdom of God, we don't dabble in sin off on the side. We don't dabble in foolish living while trying to devote ourselves to wise living. Instead, we actively fight against the sin in our life. We ask the Spirit to put our sin to death in us, and we seek God to follow God's wisdom in how we ought to live. Because just a little bit of trying to hold on to some of our sinfulness ruins the whole lot of trying to honor God with our life. And so it doesn't mean we'll live sinless life from this day forward, but rather it's the posture. Will we be pursuing God while actively trying to put to death anything that is sinful in us, or will we be pursuing sin while trying to give a little bit of lip service to God along the way? What will the posture of our heart be? Someone who longs to follow God's wisdom and tries to put to death anything in our life that's opposite to that, or someone who's just going to try to hold on to what we want and hold dear, even if it's at odds with what God has called us to. So what does it look like practically for us? As God's Spirit reveals sin in our life, we humbly repent. We confess that sin, and then we ask the Spirit to work that sin out of us. And it will be a lifelong struggle. For the Christian who is clinging to Christ alone for salvation, there's not a switch that will flip in your head, and then you stop sinning. There will be a lifelong struggle of sanctification. But in that struggle, we know that we will be victorious because it is God himself who is transforming us. The Bible says from one degree of glory to the next, God is working out our sanctification until one day we will be made perfect, until one day sin will just be something that had happened in our past but is no longer present in our life. Because God is the one doing the work, we can rest assured that work will be successful. But in this life, there will continually be that work of sanctification. And oftentimes, God in his grace has not even revealed to you the depths of your sin in some areas of your life. You're not even fully aware of the depravity of your own heart. But God will reveal that to you as his spirit is working it out of you so that you might look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So oftentimes, we want to hold on to some of our sin and say, I'm comfortable. I don't need to confront that issue in my life right now. I can just deal with it. 
I can do sort of a sin management plan that keeps it kind of at bay. But I can just sort of ignore it and move on. But Paul says if you're going to live in the Spirit, live in the Spirit and put to death anything that is from the flesh. If you're going to live in wisdom, don't try to mix a little bit of foolishness in with the wisdom. Turn left and away from turning, or turn right and away from turning left. So wisdom is delicate in a sinful world because foolishness and sinful living often seem like more enticing options. It's delicate because we, we know how God has called us to live, but the exact opposite oftentimes looks so much more captivating to us. Maybe even in the short term, it's a little bit more fun. Maybe in the short term, it gives just that little bit of satisfaction. As soon as you turn away from God, then you are following things that lead only to death. The next shortcoming of wisdom in a sinful world, wisdom is limited. Look at verse 8 of chapter 10. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. What we're seeing from these examples is people just going about their everyday lives. We see people that are just taking part in their occupation. You have someone digging a hole, someone demolishing a building, people gathering stone and lumber. These were just jobs that people would have had every day in order to make a living during the time of Ecclesiastes. But sadly, in every case, for these people, they run into tragedy. The person who digs a pit falls into it and injures himself. The person demolishing the building breaks through a wall and a snake jumps out and bites him. The people gathering stone and lumber might come into injury through their work. Wisdom is the knowledge of how to live a life that flourishes, but we live in a world where things don't just flourish, sometimes they wither. We live in a world where tragedies and accidents take place, where unexpected things can change the course of our life without warning. So we have all these people just going about their business, their daily life, Unfortunate accidents take place. Look at verse 11. If a serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The shortcoming of wisdom is that it is limited. All of the wisdom in the world on how to handle a snake and charm it doesn't help you if that snake has already bit you and delivered its venom. So wisdom helps show us what The good life ought to be. Wisdom shows us what is right and wrong. But the problem is is we don't always live in a world where if you do the right thing, the right things will happen to you instead. We live in a world where you can be doing all the right things and living with all the right wisdom, and it still goes horribly, terribly wrong. So we live in a world where you might know how to be a diligent worker that can hold down a job and provide for yourself and your family, but one day a freak accident can happen and suddenly you can't keep that job anymore and it it derails your entire career. You didn't do anything wrong to bring that upon yourself. It just happens because we live in a fallen world. 
You might have all the wisdom of how to steward your finances well so that you can live within your means and be a generous person with what God has given you. And then one day as you're driving down the road, your car blows a head gasket and wipes out your savings. There are things that happen outside of our control. We're not always rewarded for good things. We're not just punished with bad things. We just live in a sinful world that is broken. And because of that brokenness, in every area, there are tragedies and unexpected circumstances that can come up in our way. You might know that you have an eternal hope in the work of Christ, that you can have a joy each and every day that you wake up because your eternal fate is secured through the blood of Christ. But you might still suffer from depression. And I'll be clear why there's that chemical imbalance. Because we live in a world that is broken and with brain chemistry that is broken. So sometimes we might have suffer from depression for no discernible reason. Just like the snake charmer who knows everything to do to keep that snake under control, all that knowledge is useless if the snake has already bit him. All the knowledge in the world of how to do the right things might not help us the bad things keep happening, and we realize this isn't the way for me to have that good, peaceful life, because even when I do everything right, things seem to keep going wrong. Even when we know all the right things, it's not enough to guarantee that we can get the life we're wanting. Wisdom is limited in a sinful world, because while it can help us pursue a good life, it cannot prevent us from experiencing all the bad in life. So what do we do? I would commend to you to search the scriptures regularly to see what God has promised you. As I thought of this particular shortcoming of wisdom, I have a concern for the Christian who is following God, expecting that their devotion to God will earn a favor that is worked out in the form of an easy life. That is to say that I have a concern for the Christian who thinks because I have followed God with great devotion, I ought to live a peaceful, easier life. And I'm concerned for that Christian because inevitably, in this sinful world, you will not have an easy, peaceful life all your days. And if you have hung your hope on that easy, peaceful life, you will feel betrayed by God in the day that trouble visits your door. So I have a concern that you might not think of God as someone who has promised you a good and easy life if you just follow him with full devotion. So I'd implore you to search the scriptures regularly to see what God has indeed promised you. Because again, if you hang your hope on a steady job or good health or loving family as your reward for all that you have done for God, then the moment that any one of those things gets messed up, you suddenly feel as if it's God who's to blame because he didn't deliver on what he was supposed to give you. But the problem is that God has not promised you a steady job. He has not promised you good health or a loving family. So instead, remind yourself daily of what he has promised you. He's promised you salvation through his son 
for any who would believe. He has promised you his spirit and presence that will be with you always. He has promised you gifts from the spirit where you can build up his kingdom. And he has promised you an eternal life and fellowship with him that no one can separate you from. That's what God has promised to you. And if you hang your hope on anything less than those promises, eventually you will likely be disappointed and you will feel God's to blame because you didn't get that life that you thought you were working towards. So my hope is that you would remind yourself daily of what it is God has promised as you live in his wisdom. Not an easy way, not a way without trouble, but a life with immense hope in the face of trouble and a life with an eternal, unending peace when Christ returns to make all things right and put pain and sin away once and for all. Put your hope fully in that salvation. The fourth and final shortcoming of wisdom that we see in this passage is that wisdom is despised in a sinful world. If you think of the example from chapter 9, verse 13, it was a great and mighty king who laid siege to the city. And we can infer from the fact that he was defeated by the wise man that that king himself did not pursue wisdom. That king was trusting in his own might and in his own wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And later in chapter 10, if you look, verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. The writer gives this example to show that not everyone seeks after the wisdom that God offers. In fact, even people in places of power and authority like kings and princes can choose their own childishness. They can choose their own juvenile wisdom to try to live the life they want. And so wisdom is often despised in this world. And even if you're a person with great power and authority, it doesn't mean that you'll be wise. In fact, from these pages we see oftentimes you work in opposition to God's wisdom. So the wisdom of God is not universally acknowledged as wisdom. In fact, it's often turned on its head to be viewed by the world as foolishness. It's what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians when he says that the world looks to the event of the cross and sees foolishness. It despises the work of the cross because it sees no wisdom there. It does not see the sovereign, unshakable wisdom of God as he's providing salvation at the cross. Instead, when the world looks at the cross, it just sees a man who claims to bring eternal life but can't escape his own death. So the world will often look at the cross and say, well, how foolish could you possibly be to believe in that? Jesus came promising eternal life, but the cross is the very public evidence that he himself could not seemingly secure an eternal life. He promised that 
You would never die if you believed in him, but he himself died with many witnesses on a cross. How foolish would you have to be to believe in that Savior? So the world will look at God's infinite wisdom in his plan of salvation and will label it foolish. And they will despise the wisdom that God has revealed in bringing his son as a substitute for our sins. Wisdom is despised in a sinful world because it tells us we are wrong. God's wisdom tells us we're not the hero of our life. It tells us that we're not good enough to secure eternal life, to secure salvation. The wisdom of God tells us that we don't have the right answers on how to live our own life. To acknowledge and accept the wisdom of God requires you to humbly say, I have all the wrong answers and I need someone else to tell me what to do. So oftentimes we despise that because we want to feel like we know what to do. I have all the right answers. I know how to live my life. I'm in control here. If I can just do what I know is best, it's all going to work out for me. I don't need anyone to tell me what I should do. God's wisdom says, you don't know the first thing about helping yourself. The only thing you've ever done for yourself is to heap on God's judgment through your own sin. And you need a Savior who can come, take that sin for you, take the punishment for that sin, and give you his own righteousness so you can have any sort of claim to be united with God. So any right that you have to be with God only comes because Jesus not only took your sin on himself, but then also took his righteousness and gave it to you. He had to do both of those things for you to be united with God, and you brought nothing except for the sin that needed punishment to that equation. And the wisdom of God says, trust in the work of Christ and not in your own understanding of how to live your life. Oftentimes we want to despise that because it flies in the face of our own feelings of self-sufficiency, of our own feelings of intelligence, and just knowing kind of our gut instinct knows best. So the writer of Ecclesiastes shows us even kings and people in authority, even people who have all the power in the world, oftentimes will miss the wisdom of God. They will just see it as foolishness. So this passage ends again. Wisdom is helpful, but there's certainly still some problems that remain. Because wisdom is helpful in showing us how we ought to live, but it's temporary in the fact that it can't stop us from death. We can do all the right things in the world, but we still will face death. It's temporary in that regard. That though wisdom is helpful, it's delicate. And that we can just mix in just a little bit of our own wisdom and understanding and ruin everything that we're trying to do in life. That wisdom can be helpful. But more often than not, it will be despised, not just by the world around us, but even often by our own hearts. We will despise God telling us we're wrong. So it's helpful to show us 
where the good life is. A life with God, living out his commandments as he built this world to be. We can see that good life if we follow his wisdom. But just following God's instructions alone still can't get us that good life. We still can't just work hard enough to fully realize a life that has the peace and satisfaction we want and we long for and we desire. And again, the problem for the writer of Ecclesiastes is that he is limiting his search to that which is under the sun, to that which we can try and do for ourselves. And once again, he said, even wisdom here under the sun, though good, is not enough to secure that good life that I'm looking for. And so we're only left with the conclusion that it must be something above this world that can help secure this good life of unending satisfaction. And as we stand on the other side of the cross, we can see that that is Jesus Christ himself. That frees us from having to follow all the right things, all the right way to try and secure a good life. Instead, we can just come with the faith of a child and say, I am a sinner, forgive me. And God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, will welcome you into his family, call you his child, and will begin to work out a process of making you more and more like Christ until one day we will live the good life, whereas we follow God and give him glory eternally. There won't be pain. There will not be suffering that God's wisdom of how to live will always give the perfect result because the sin and brokenness of this world will be done with. And we can rejoice all together in our great Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that we would keep our eyes fixed firmly on you. That we might have our hope only on what you have promised in the salvation of Christ. We don't hang our hope on anything lesser. That we could look forward with anticipation to a day in which we live with you face to face. Good life. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.